Hans Vicky. Before you haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. Just two things very quickly. Um, you may want to get an outline there, just on the back table if you didn't get one as you came in. You might want to just grab that. You can if you want. You don't have to. No one wants to. That's okay. Um, the other thing is, we go through uh, books of the Bible uh, generally. Here, we're going through the book of Exodus. And the great thing about going through the book of Exodus or the or book of the Bible is, it's going to be sometimes when uh, we look at a passage that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And I think we've looked at that. We're going to look at a passage that may make us a bit uncomfortable. But there's also grace and hope here. So uh, I'm going to pray that God speak to us wherever we're at, and uh, we'll jump in. Let's pray. Now, Father God, I pray as we look at your word that you would speak to us. Lord, we live in a world where there's so many words going on all about us all the time. We read words, we hear words and everything, and yet we, we need a word from you. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, today... Uh, this talk will not just be mere me speaking words, but that you would speak through your word to all of us, no matter where we're at with you. For those of us who are figuring out where we're at with Jesus, we pray that um, they would hear um, the, the, the things that they need to hear to encounter you. For those of us here who have been following you for years, we pray that as we look at this probably familiar story, that you would encourage us or challenge us or rebuke us. Help us as we encounter you in your word to be changed so that we would walk away from here changed and more ready, more willing, more able to worship you, serve you with our whole lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I need a little bit of uh, crowd participation here. I want you to put up your hand if you had an imaginary friend when you, when you grew up. Only uh, There's a few of us. I had an imaginary friend called Peter Bocker. Peter Bocker. That was his name, and uh, it was great having an imaginary friend because uh, he was always there for you, and he always liked what you liked, and he always hated what you hated and all this kind of stuff. One, one time it was sad, though. One of my uh, friends, Richard Yates, actually said, can Peter Bocker come over to my place? I said, sure, fair enough. Peter Bocker went with Richard Yates. Richard came back the next day, and he said, Peter Bocker doesn't want to play with you anymore. And I was like, how much of a loser was I, when I was a kid, not even my imaginary friend wanted to play with me, but you know, and so, but uh, look, it's kind of cute when, when people, when kids have an imaginary friend, but have you ever met an adult with an imaginary friend? Have you ever been at a work function and they go, oh, what are you doing this weekend? And the guy goes, um, I'm hanging out with my imaginary friend. I mean, wouldn't you be thinking, I've got to talk to someone else in the room very quickly, right? Because it's very cute when kids have an imaginary friend, but it's kind of pathetic when adults do. And yet, I actually think so many adults today have an imaginary friend. We don't call him Peter Bocker, we call him God. And I say that not because I don't think God is real, I say that because our version of God is far more like an imaginary friend than the God of the Bible, the God that is truly there. We believe in a God, a God, a lot of us, who is a lot like us. He, he may be a little bit better. He may be a little bit nicer than us. But basically, he's like us. He hates the same things we do. He likes the same things we do. He doesn't say or do anything that will make us uncomfortable. He is always there for us. He's far more like an imaginary friend than the God who is really and truly there. 
So I bring that up today because we are going to encounter God as he is really and truly there today. And we're going to look at uh, this picture of God that the Bible gives that I think should make us uncomfortable a little bit. Because we're going to see not only the kindness of God, but we're also going to see his severity. And, and here's my question to you. As we, as we look at this passage, what are you going to do when you truly encounter God today? When he speaks to you through his word, are you going to have your heart and mind open to him? Or are you going to be like Pharaoh and just have a hard heart? That's your choice today. Are you going to have your heart and your mind open to him? Or are you going to have a hard heart? As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the God who is faithful, the God who judges, and the God who saves. The God who's faithful, the God who judges, and the God who saves. So let's have a look at our first point, the God who is faithful. And, and please open your Bibles if you've closed it. One of the things that we see all the way through the book of Exodus so far, is that God is intimately involved with his people. In in chapter 2, we read that God has heard the cries of his people, that they've been in slavery for 430 years, and God has heard them, and he's going to act. In in chapter 3, God sends Moses, who is going to lead them out of Egypt. In chapter 6, God says once again to Moses and his people, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. I'm going to do all this. There's going to be plagues, but I am going to rescue you. And then in chapter 11, what we see is God tells Moses what he is going to do. There's going to be a final plague. It's a plague on the firstborn where the firstborn of Egypt die. And yet God is going to rescue his people. And then in chapter 12, from verse 19 to 36, we see that God came through and he did it. He didn't just say it, he came through on his promises. And I want you to see how long they have been waiting. Have a look at chapter 12, verse 40 and 41 with me. Chapter 12, verse 40 and 41 with me. It says this, Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt did you see 430 years they have been in Egypt? And in fact, God gave some promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 and Genesis chapter 15, which were a couple of generations before they went into Egypt. And so they have been waiting on promises for 500-ish years. And yet God is faithful. God has come through on his promises. What what we've got to realize is this, that God's promises are certain no matter how many obstacles are in the way. God promised his people that he would rescue them and give them a new land. And it didn't matter if standing between him and those keeping those promises was the most powerful nation in existence at that time. It did not matter because God is powerful enough to keep his promises 
even if it takes him 500 years. See, what we've got to realise is that God's promises don't have an expiration date. God's promises don't have a nice get-out clause. God's promises don't have fine print at the bottom that say, unless you do these things, God is going to renege on his promises. No, God's promises are certain no matter how many obstacles are in the way. God is a faithful God who always keeps his promises. But I don't know about you, but when people promise, when I hear people make a promise, I don't know, I'm pretty sceptical. And it's not just because other people let me down, it's because I find myself letting other people down. A couple of weeks ago, my daughter, uh, Emma, she said to me, oh, can you come and watch uh, my netball game on Friday afternoon? And I said, I, I can't, and, and, uh, but, but let's try and find a time that I can. And so we looked in my diary and I said, well, I can't do this week, I can't do next week, I'm sorry, uh, but I can do the week after, right? And we were like, okay, I'm putting it in my diary, put it in my diary, I'm going to come and see you again. I'm really pumped. And then unfortunately, I had to go to a funeral uh, just Friday, just gone. And I had to tell my daughter, sorry, I couldn't keep that promise. Something has come up and she totally understood and she wasn't angry, but I felt a bit bad because I couldn't fulfill my promise to my daughter because I didn't realise that there was going to be a funeral that was going to come up that I had to go to. But that's not like God, because God sees the end from the beginning. He's unlike me and unlike you, because He's all-powerful. And therefore, God, because He can see the end from the beginning, knows that He can keep His promises. Because He's all-powerful, He can always keep His promises, even if it takes 500 years to do. God is a faithful God who always keeps His promises. Why is that important? Because I think as people of faith, we're resting on God's promises all the time, aren't we? Some of us here are hurting. We have cried so many tears. Well, remember God's promise to you from Revelation 21 that one day He's going to wipe away every tear. One day you'll be in a place where there's no more pain or crying or anything. That's God's promise to you. Some of you guys are struggling with sin at the moment. And it just feels like this amazing struggle that you can't deal with. And yet, we read in 1 Corinthians 10 that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Some of us are anxious or fearful of the future. Or fearful maybe of things now. Well, remember, Hebrews 13 says, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. God is always there with you, even through the darkest valleys. Those promises and so many more you can take to the bank and rely on. Why? Because God is a God who is faithful. He always keeps His promises. God's promises are certain, no matter how many obstacles in, in, are in the way. Maybe you can only see obstacles in your life right now between you and, and God keeping His promises. Guess what? Those obstacles are nothing to a God who is all-powerful and sees everything and is faithful. And so when, when you get to a place where you're going, I'm, I, don't, I don't know, I'm scared or I'm, or I'm this or I'm that, remind yourself of God's promises. Remind yourself of God's faithfulness that He always keeps His promises. 
See, part of the problem with us as Christians or people who follow Jesus or trying to figure out uh, where we're at with Jesus is this, that, that we listen to ourselves. We don't preach to ourselves. And what I mean by that, we listen to the thoughts that are going on in our head all the time, which a lot of the time are antithetical to what God would have us believe. And so we've got to remind ourselves, we've got to preach to ourselves God's truth about his promises. You know that God always keeps his promises because he said he was going to save you. And he came down in the person of Jesus and died on the cross for you. Remember the cross because at the cross you see that God always keeps his promises. That's our first point. God is faithful. He always keeps his promises. Now, one of the things a few of you have said um, a couple of weeks ago, um, you've said, uh, how, can, how can we believe that the book of Exodus, the things that the book of Exodus happened, right? And I could talk about this all day. I won't. I'm just going to give you a little tidbit each time, right? If you have a look at chapter 12, verse 37, it talks about thousands upon thousands of Israelites going out of Egypt. What's really interesting is that around the time of the Exodus, about 40 or 50 years after a lot of historians date, date the Exodus, there's a population explosion in, in Canaan. Uh, some archaeologists say, between, most archaeologists would say actually, about six times the number of people just kind of explode in a hundred years. Some say as many as ten times. There's this population explosion. Where do they come from? Well, there's probably many places that they come from, but the Bible says one of those places is from an exodus of slaves from Egypt. Now, does that prove the book of Exodus? No, but it's a, a little piece of circumstantial evidence. But let's keep moving on, because I know that not everyone's a history geek like me. And what's more important than the his, history behind it is what God is saying to us. And we're going to have a look at the God who judges. That's our second point, the God who judges. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 4 with me. So Moses said... This is him speaking to Pharaoh. This is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who was at her handmill. All the firstborn cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or will ever be again. Have a look once again at verse, tw uh, verse 12 of chapter 12. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Notice who's doing it. It is God himself. He is doing it. I am doing it. I am bringing judgment. I am doing this. Have a look at verse 29, verse 30 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Can I, can I just say this is terrible? We're not meant to go, oh man, isn't this 
beautiful or amazing. This is, this is just shocking. It's meant to say to, to rebel against God is, is, there's a lethal aspect of it. But some of us are going, well, how can this be fair? I, I get fairer, right, right? Do whatever you want to fairer because he was hard-hearted against, against God. He was so arrogant and so proud. But, but everyone else in Egypt, are you kidding me? How is, how is that fair? Well, I want to show you a few things. Have a look. Uh, flip back to Exodus chapter 1 with me. Exodus chapter 1. At verse 22. This is another Pharaoh. This is the Pharaoh before the one that we're talking about in chapter 11. But notice what he does. Then Pharaoh gave this order to who? All his people, all the people of Egypt. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. He, he, he's saying, this is what you are meant to do. Now, here's the thing. Back in Egypt, in this time, Pharaoh is considered a god and his people would do what he said, generally. Have a look at chapter 5, verse 6 and 10. Verse 6. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Have a look at verse 10. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, and they repeat what he said. What, what we see here in the book of Exodus is that it's not just Pharaoh who actually keeps God's people, the Israelites, in slavery. It's actually a whole nation. In chapter 6, we see the magicians dupe Pharaoh. In chapter 9, verse 30, the officials don't fear God. In chapter 10, verse 1, the officials have hard hearts. This is not just Pharaoh, this is a whole nation who is deciding to believe their gods which aren't really there and oppress the Israelites. See, and here's the thing, you're probably thinking, well, maybe they disagreed, but they didn't speak up. But what we've got to realise, history shows us, is, that, is this, to not speak up when evil is present is to be complicit in evil. To not speak up when evil is present is to be complicit in evil itself. When I was uh, a teenager, uh, I worked at the Maury Pool in Maury. I don't know why I had to say Maury, but anyway. Um, and what was really interesting is that you had a lot of people who were European migrants come up to the pool in Maury because we had these hot springs. And um, during the middle of the day when there was not much on, I used to talk to a lot of them. I remember meeting this one lady and, uh, uh, from Germany. Uh, she had moved out to Australia in the 60s, but she um, was born in 1939, just when World War II started. And, and I talked with, with her, and she shared about her life, and she said how hard it was growing up post-World War II, how hard it was her, for her family, especially. 
And I said, oh, mate, that must have been really, really hard. I can only imagine how hard it was. And she said, oh, yeah, but we deserved it. And I was like, wait, wait why? Were your family members of the Nazi party? She goes, oh, no, no, we weren't. But, but we all knew something was happening. I was deeply evil. I was deeply wrong. And, and to not speak in that instance is to be complicit with the evil itself. And here, to not speak up when people are in slavery for 430 years is to be complicit in the evil itself. See, the people of, Israel, of Egypt were joining with Pharaoh in his rebellion against God. And what does God do? God, the all-powerful one, uses lethal force in judgment. Now, can you see how foolish it is to be God's enemy? Can you see how foolish it is to put yourself up against God? You see, Pharaoh did acknowledge who God was. And the plagues were showed how powerful God is and his power and his might, and yet Pharaoh still disobeyed over and over and over again. And one of the things that, that this final plague shows, in fact, all the, all the plagues show, in fact, the whole Bible shows is God is not someone to ignore, to play games with or mess with. The, when, I, when I look at Australia, I, I look at a bunch of people generally who just ignore God. Or we're playing games with him. We think, oh, well, I can live my life now, but in the future when I'm old and decrepit, once I've had my fun, that's when I'm going to trust in God and everything will be okay. We're just playing games with him. And if you don't believe me that we're playing games with him in the West, believe Ben Affleck. Here's a quote from one of my favourite movies called Dogma. Ben Affleck plays a, a fallen angel and he's talking about humans here and God says this, the humans have besmirched everything bestowed on, on them. They were given paradise. They, they threw it away. They were given this planet. They destroyed it. They were favored best among all his endeavors. And some of them don't even believe he exists. And in spite of it all, he has shown them infinite patience at every turn. Ben Affleck or, or, or Bartleby, the character, is absolutely right. God has blessed us so well, especially in Australia. And yet, we couldn't be bothered with God. Or we're playing games with Him. And yet, this passage shows God is not someone to play games with. God is not someone to, to mess with. God is not someone to ignore. Because He's all-powerful. And when we ignore him, we're saying, we're the king, not you. Just like Pharaoh did. Pharaoh said, I'm the king, not, not your God. But we're doing that. God is not someone to mess with. When I was at Moore College, one of my, one of my best friends at Moore College was a guy named Steve House. I actually saw him when all, all the blokes went up to um, base camp. And uh, Steve is a bit shorter than me, but man, he's just, he's huge. Some doorways, I'm sure he has to kind of turn to the side to walk in. He looks like he could go uh, croc hunting with a stick and come back with 10 carcasses. He's just, he's a scary looking dude, right? But he's a lovely guy, right? 
One time after an exam, we, we, were both, we both did really badly in, in the exam. And he said, oh, I, just, I need to go and get a drink. And I said, okay, let's go to the pub. And uh, he said, I'll shout the first round. He got his beer, I, I, he got his coat, uh, my coke. But I, I, I got a table and there's two guys that came up to me and said, um, we're sitting here. And I said, oh, actually, no, 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 we're sitting here. Oh, sorry, we've got this table. There's all tables around. And they were like, no, no, no. We always sit here every time, every day. And I should have said, okay, I'll just sit over here. But I was young, stupid, and arrogant. And I said, no, you, you can sit over here. Anyway, I got a bit heated. And then Housey, Steve House came, put his drinks on the table and goes, hey, boys, is there a problem here? And they were like, no, nah, no, nah, there's not a problem. We're just going to sit over there, right? In fact, we're going to another pub, right, right now. Why did they react like that? Because you don't mess with Steve House. You just don't mess with Steve House. And, and this passage is saying you don't mess with God. My fear is that some of us here are just kind of playing with games with God. We know he is there, but we don't want to give our lives to him. We don't want to bow the knee to him. We're just playing some silly games with him. See, what we've got to realize is, from, from this passage is that we are like Pharaoh. Before God, you and I are not people who need a little bit of improvement or a little bit of inspiration for the coming week. No, you and I are rebels who are, who are defying the king of the universe by saying, I am the king of my universe. And as rebels, we need not just a little bit of improvement, we need to lay down our arms and bow to the true and living king. Are you willing to lay down your arms and bow to the true and living king? Or are you going to face his wrath? That's the question. But the beautiful thing about the God who we shouldn't mess with, the God who judges, he's also a God that saves. Flip back over to chapter 12 with me. It's a scary thing, a terrifying thing to, to, to think that God is going to do something as bad as he did here and yet God provides a way out. He provides a substitute. Have a look at 12 verse 5 with me. It talks about an animal, a sheep. But notice the animals that you choose must be year-old males without defect. You must take them from the sheep or the goats a perfect sheep, without any spots or defect. And what are they meant to do? They are meant to kill the, the animal, put the, put the blood of the animal on the doorposts. And have a look at verse 21 with me. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover land, take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top, on the so sorry, on the top uh, on, and on both sides and on the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over the doorway and he will not permit the destroyer, to enter your houses and strike you down. God provides a way of them being saved. And in verse 38 of chapter 12, what we see is the people who go out of 
Egypt, it's not just the Israelites, but in the original, it literally says a mixed multitude. The, the idea here is that it's not just the Israelites being saved. I dare say there were some Egyptians that went, oh man, did you hear about those plagues? I've heard about a big one. We've got to, we've got to do something. I'm just going to try and see if this works. You, you see, in the end, it's not about whether you're Egyptian or Israelite, whether you're, sa- whether you're saved here. It's about whether you put your trust in the blood of the, on the doorway. Have you put your trust in the God who saves? And this is a question for us too today. As, as we've seen, God is a God who judges and that judgment is still coming, that final judgment. And the people who are going to escape that final judgment are the ones who put their trust in Jesus. He is our Passover lamb who died for us. It is his blood who, who, who covers us so that the wrath of God passes over us. The judgment that was meant to be for us has gone on him. And so what should we do? Well, this passage says a few things. Have a look at 12 verse 2 again. Let's go from verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. So the family's meant to come together, and each man is meant to lead his family in this. That is, each man is meant to slaughter, is meant to tell of, his, of what God has done. Have a look at chapter 13, verse 8 with me. Chapter 13, verse 8. On that day, the same day you're going to prepare all all the things for the Passover, on that day, you're going to tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Notice how this is a thing. You could be a thousand years after the Exodus, but you're still going to tell your son, this is what he's done for us. Because what defines the Israelites and what defines those people is what God has done. And you're meant to tell your kids about that. Verse 14, the same thing. Have a look at verse 14 with me. In the days to come when your sons ask, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What are you meant to do, men? You're meant to show leadership of your family by telling your kids about what God has done, about what Jesus has done for you. One of the things I think as men we want to lead, right? Like, or we want the respect that, that, you know, being a father or a husband does. But can I ask you this? Are you doing what a biblical husband does? Are you doing what a biblical father does? Here and all the way throughout the Bible, the father is meant to remind his kids of what God has done. Men in this room, when was the last time you read and read the Bible with your kids? When was the last time you sat down and prayed for them? When was the last time you led your family in a conversation around Jesus? This passage is saying that's what we're meant to be as men. 
And can I just say, I read, my Bible, read the Bible with my kids. Kate and I take it in turns. It doesn't go well all the time. The other night, um, around dinner, I was trying to read the Bible with my kids, and my two sons were trying to be stand-up comics. My, my daughter was laughing, and I just, I, I lost it at them, right? You know, I was like, oh, great, I'm a professional Christian pastor person, and I can't even do this properly, right? But the next night, we still did it again and again and again. Why? Because I want to tell my kids that this is the most important thing. Uh, you know, I've got to tell my kids, you know, your marks matter, but they're not the most important thing. You, you know, whether, you know, well, I hope you've got a lot of friends, but what's more important is that you're friends with Jesus. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, if you love sport, that's great, but love Jesus more. All the way through this passage, it talks about this meal that, we, that the Israelites were meant to do to get together to remember what God has done because it's so easy to forget. It is so easy to be consumed with many, many other things and totally forget what God has done, forget the most important things. In fact, 12 verse 2 says it's meant to be the first month. The first month is meant to define the whole year. And therefore, what God has done is meant to define our lives. What Jesus has done has meant to define our lives. There was two men from the country. They were standing outside around uh, a barbecue. They were cooking the meat and their wives were inside. And uh, one of them said to the other, one of them had just come back from the from the, uh, from the city, and he said, uh, yeah, we, we've gone to the city, and we went to a really, really good restaurant. And he said, uh, and the other guy said, um, what was the restaurant called? He goes, oh, man, my memory's really bad. Um, um, you know, a flower, like, you know, a flower, he goes, uh, like a, you know, a poppy. No, he goes, no, 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 it's like a tall one. He goes, like a sunflower. He goes, no, it's, it's like, um, it's got red and it's, it's spiky. He goes, oh, Rose. Yeah, you're right. Hey, Rose, what was that place we went to, right? It's very easy to forget the most important things, isn't it? And so that's why this passage says, every year you're meant to remember. But the Bible actually says to us, we're meant to keep reminding each other. That's why church is so important, isn't it? Because church, we're reminding each other of the eternal significance of what Jesus has done. That's why we sing together, not just, you, you know, so that you would remind everyone we can praise God together. That's why we read the Bible. That's why we preach it. All, all this kind of stuff. It's so that we're remembering together because it's so easy to forget. It's so easy to forget. But some of us here are just going, well, hands, I, th I hear about what Jesus has done. I hear that he's my Passover land, that he's died for me. And I, and I have these feelings like, like, why would God save me? I, I mean, I, I just feel like my life's a mess. I don't have the faith that, that you have or someone else has or, or whatever. And I just feel like... I, I get these feelings, these thoughts that I haven't done enough, that I'm not good enough to be saved. I just want you to imagine another two guys. On the afternoon of the Passover, they've heard they've got to get, get everything done. They've got to have the Passover land. They've got to do the blood. They've got to do all these kinds of stuff. And they're having a chat. And one says... 
hey, I'm really scared. I'm actually really terrified because, like, what if Moses, what if he got something wrong? What, 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 if, what if he got something wrong? Like, and then I look at myself, I just go, well, you know, like, I just, man, I haven't been, I don't pray and I don't do all these things and I don't know, man, I'm just really scared. And then the other one goes, oh, mate, like, but, but you, you've, got, you've, got, you've got a lamb, haven't you? You're going you're gonna to slaughter the lamb, you're going to eat, you're going to do the blood. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to do all of that. And, and the other one goes, look, look, you may have doubts, I don't. I, I'm, I'm saying bring it on. I can't wait for it. It's going to be amazing. Which one of those two men's families were saved? The answer is both. Because they weren't saved on the basis of their lives. They were saved on the basis of the blood on the door. You are not saved on the basis of your life. How good of a Christian you are. How many doubts or, how much, or lack of doubts or, or anything like that. You are saved on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. When you stand before Jesus on that last day, and he says, why should I let you into heaven? You're not going to think, well, man, I went to Marsfield Community Church. I endured Hans Christensen's sermons. That's got to be good for something. No, you're going to say, because Jesus died for me. When you get those thoughts in your head and you think, oh, how could God save someone like me? You're going to say, well, it's not about me. It's because of what Jesus has done for me. When Satan whispers in your ears and tells you about all your sin, you're going to say, go away, Satan. I know that I'm saved because of what Jesus has done for me. When you, like me, have a bad week and you just get frustrated with your kids because you hadn't had enough sleep or whatever, you know, and you feel like a pathetic Christian, you're going to say, I'm saved not because of how bad or good I am. I'm saved because of what Jesus has done for me. He is our Passover lamb. Jesus shows that God is ultimately faithful. He took the judgment that we deserve because our God is a God that saves. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that it shows you in all, all your terrifying beauty. It shows you as judge, but shows the beauty of you as a faithful God that saves. Lord, I pray for, for people here today who, are, who may be just playing games with you. Lord, I pray that they wouldn't, that they would come to Jesus, they would bow the knee and put their trust in him today. For those of us with, with doubts about your faithfulness, help us to remember that you said you were going to save us and you did in Jesus. You are the faithful God. For those of us who are wondering whether we've done enough to be saved, help us to, help us to be reminded that it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And help us to put our trust in Him. Lord, thank You for what You've done. Thank You for what You've done for us. Amen.
in response to what God has done for us, in, in response to what we have heard. Let's stand and sing to the God who is truly for us. Let's stand and sing.